In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, November 30th, 2023, the 1044th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's begin today with the death of a key figure in globalist politics, Henry Kissinger, who is reported to have died yesterday at 100 years old. Following the recent deaths of Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife, the former first lady, and Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's boy, the former vice chairman of 
Buffett's Berkshire Capital, who died with just over a month before his 100th birthday. And with Kissinger's passing, we are told that he is a very complicated character. It's too simple to call him great. It's too simple to call him evil. We have to understand that he was both great and evil, which, if you ask me, seems to be a remnant of our brainwashing, believing that something can be evil and also great, rather than understanding that the ostensible greatness of the man may well have been created purely through his total inhibition when it comes to evil. Now, as you might imagine, every news organization already has obituaries prepared for Henry Kissinger. Perhaps that is a mark of success in the life of a member of the regime. You are so important that your obituary is written long before your death and just brought out whenever they decide to announce that you have passed on. But let's go to the USA Today and just accept the fact that this article may well be written by an AI. Henry Kissinger, a statesman who indelibly shaped U.S. foreign policy, dies at 100. Henry Kissinger, a German-born American diplomat who shaped U.S. foreign policy in the second half of the 20th century and won a Nobel Prize for brokering an end to the Vietnam War, has died. His death was confirmed in a statement from his consulting firm. He was 100 years old. Kissinger was the most celebrated U.S. statesman in modern times, helping former President Richard Nixon establish U.S. relations with China. Oh, hallelujah. Negotiating the 1973 ceasefire with North Vietnam. Oh, what stellar work that was. Reaching Cold War detente and arms agreements with the Soviet Union and conducting shuttle diplomacy to defuse Middle East tension. Now, this is the framing of the standard view of how the world works in terms of the one world rules based international liberal world order. That's Kissinger's big project. But if instead we look at all of this stuff through the good twin, evil twin paradigm, well, it just looks like Henry Kissinger was setting up the operation of the evil twins infiltration and control all around the world for the last 70 years. And it turns out that's a far more accurate interpretation. Kissinger, at the same time, was an intensely controversial figure and a lightning rod for critics of Nixon's foreign policy, particularly in the conduct of the Vietnam War and its expansion into Cambodia, which was followed by the rise of the genocidal Khmer Rouge. He was hailed as a brilliant strategic thinker, a Harvard-educated political scientist who wielded power with pragmatic conservatism, sometimes described as realpolitik or hard-nosed political realism. The article notes that Kissinger became national security advisor when Nixon took office in 1969 and in 1973 became secretary of state. After overshadowing William Rogers, Nixon's first secretary of state, by taking the lead on important foreign policy issues. Kissinger continued in the cabinet post under former President Gerald Ford after Nixon resigned office over the Watergate scandal. So basically, they were able to take down Nixon and Kissinger got to keep his job. Kissinger was an outsized figure on the public stage during the prime of his public career. 
An unabashed publicity hound, he dated Hollywood starlets and both courted and manipulated Washington columnists and journalists. He remained a fixture of television talk shows well into his 80s and led a successful consulting business. Democrat and Republican presidents alike sought his counsel as they shaped foreign policy in the aftermath of the Cold War and the terrorist attacks on the United States of September 11, 2001. Companies and governments paid millions of dollars to his consulting firm, Kissinger Associates, for his strategic analysis and contacts with those still in power. Kissinger's, quote, influence stayed with him after he left office, while that of all the others, with the possible exception of James Baker, dissipated, said Leslie Gelb, a former president of the Council on Foreign Relations and one-time Kissinger protege. The article discusses some of his intellectual work, including a book called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. They say in them, Kissinger described his worldview, pragmatic, even ruthless balance of power politics that gave minimal weight to moral issues such as human rights. If I had to choose between justice and disorder on the one hand and injustice and order on the other, I would always choose the latter, Kissinger once told a colleague, according to Dalek. They note Kissinger's rise was in part due to close association with Nelson Rockefeller, a millionaire advisor to former President Dwight Eisenhower, who became New York governor and unsuccessful Republican presidential aspirant. When Rockefeller lost the Republican nomination to Nixon in 1968, Kissinger shifted his allegiance to Nixon, offering confidential information about U.S. negotiations with communist North Vietnam that helped Nixon win the election, according to several historians, among them William Bundy, a former assistant secretary of state. The article goes through some of his foreign policy accomplishments, and one of them is the Chilean coup. Transcripts of taped conversations between Nixon and Kissinger and between Kissinger and his staff revealed covert U.S. efforts to prevent the 1970 presidential election of Allende and encouraged the generals who may have killed Allende and thousands of other Chileans in 1973. But they would never steal an election in the United States of America, and that is what is important to remember. The global regime would never steal or even manipulate an election in the United States. This man was intimately involved with every aspect of the global regime's agenda and globalist policies around the world, including the creation of the petrodollar, which is now collapsing with incredibly coincidental timing considering his death. Prussiagate covers the impact of Henry Kissinger on the rise of the global Prussian regime. I suggest everyone take a look at that. It is in there. Reichswef part two entry. This is prussiagate.substack.com. And I will just go through some highlights here. Kissinger's family fled Jewish persecution in Germany and arrived in America in 1938. The family settled in Washington Heights, which was home to so many other German immigrants that the place became colloquially known as the Fourth Reich. Years later, Kissinger would refer to his affinity with totalitarianism. I have now joined you as a cardinal villain in the liberal demonology, Kissinger told a friend, joking that 
a piece written about him was being taken as, quote, a symptom of my totalitarian and even Nazi sympathies. And as a good Prussian, of course, he would have these. We are told that is impossible for someone who is said to be Jewish. They could never align with the Nazi ideology, that Prussian ideology, even though they all clearly do. In 1943, Kissinger was drafted into the U.S. Army. He was recruited into military intelligence by Fritz Kramer. Fritz had an enormous influence on Kissinger as well as other future politicians like Donald Rumsfeld and Alexander Haig. Unsurprisingly, Fritz also immigrated to America from Germany. They go on. No matter what anyone thinks of Fritz Kramer, herein lies the dilemma. His Prussian traditions led him to the belief that a quote-unquote noble elite was required to run Western democracies. A government for the people, by the people, was an unacceptable risk to the state. Instead, a government must be for the people, by the chosen elite. Fritz's ideology permeated through the central intelligence agencies. The cult of Prussia was now on full display, and Kissinger was his prime choice to shape America's future. The other man that influenced Kissinger's thinking was his teacher at Harvard, William Yandel Elliott. Elliott, quote, would eventually be a political advisor to six U.S. presidents and would also serve as a mentor to Zbigniew Brzezinski and Pierre Trudeau, among others. So that is the father of Mika Brzezinski from Morning Mika, Morning Joe on MSNBC, and Pierre Trudeau, the man claimed to be Justin Trudeau's father, although his father is in actuality Fidel Castro. Judging by the company Kissinger kept in his early years, it should not be surprising that his outlook on world affairs was decidedly Prussian. He would deny it if asked, but Kissinger was uber Bismarckian, a man who would take realpolitik to its extreme. And there are a couple of quotes from Henry Kissinger's own book, Diplomacy, from 1994. Kissinger wrote, Realpolitik for Bismarck depended on flexibility and on the ability to exploit every available option without the constraint of ideology. And that, my friends, is the ultimate explanation for what often appears to be inconsistencies in the politics of many of these people. They operate on purely pragmatic motivations. If something works for their overall goal, they will do it. It's not about principle. It's not about morality. There is no right and wrong. It's just whether or not it works. Their goals are big picture and long term. Sacrificing one's principles and beliefs in the short term is totally acceptable. Prussiagate notes. Kissinger, no doubt, was a disciple of Hegelian philosophy. Understanding the principles of the master-slave dialectic, he defended the idea that true power involved the complete submission to authority. And another quote from Diplomacy. And history teaches this iron law of revolutions. The more extensive the eradication of existing authority, the more its successors must rely on naked power to establish themselves. For in the end, legitimacy involves an acceptance of authority without compulsion. Its absence turns every contest into a test of strength. 
Russiagate goes on. Everything about Kissinger's philosophy is completely un-American. A republic built on the values of freedom and unalienable individual rights does not require an unelected bureaucratic noble elite to make decisions on behalf of its citizenry. In fact, everything about Kissinger's philosophy supported the traditions of Prussia, a state that uses any means possible to survive and thrive on the world stage. Prussia was a state that used a noble elite to make decisions for the people, no matter how draconian, unpopular, or deadly. They used war as its principal means of bringing about the complete submission of its enemies. The playbook remains the same today. Kissinger's education would provide the tools necessary to implement his ideological framework in America and then upon the world. His career accomplishments would have brought a tear to the eye of Frederick the Great, Hegel, Marx, and every other Prussian who served their providential master, Prussia. Kissinger was a proponent of eugenics and depopulation. There was actually a formerly classified Kissinger report about the problem with the increase in population. Kissinger believed the population of the third world carried the biggest threat to America. And Prussiagate cites a summary of that report. Dr. Kissinger proposed in his memorandum to the NSC that depopulation should be the highest priority of U.S. foreign policy toward the third world. He quoted reasons of national security. And because the U.S. economy will require large and increasing amounts of minerals from abroad, especially from less developed countries, wherever a lessening of the population can increase the prospects for such stability, population policy becomes relevant to resources, supplies, and to the economic interests of the United States. They note that for Kissinger, depopulation was not personal. It was simply political realism. An obscene policy to protect the world was just a modern expression of realpolitik. They go through his relations with China, through the launch of the petrodollar, and then into a discussion of the Thucydides trap, which refers to when a rising power, in the relevant case China, begins to threaten the power position of the established power, in this case, the United States. At some point, war would become inevitable. And in order to secure the stability of the one world, rules-based, liberal, international world order, rather than creating that conflict that would ultimately end in war, it was seen as better to have a managed decline of the United States, an off-ramp that would allow the U.S. to retreat as the dominant world power in a handoff, in a sense, to China. Because if you're a globalist, you don't really care which country around the world is the seat of dominant power. All you care about is that they're all under control and that things can be stable around the world. Global elites do not need strong and thriving economies in American small towns. They don't need thriving American small businesses. They don't need any of that. What they need are the really nice pieces of real estate in the United States of America so that they can live and vacation in those places. They want the coastlines. They want the mountains. And then they want to own the farmland and the land that can be used 
for industrial needs, but they don't care about the state of things there because they're not going to live there. That's what the slaves are for. They want the nice parts of America to be properly set up to cater to their needs. And they want the same thing in other countries around the world. We're talking about people who imagine the entire world to be borderless. From that perspective, it doesn't matter at all which country represents the dominant power in the world order. Back to Prussiagate. Kissinger's career hardly resembles a man who defended American supremacy. In fact, he was chosen to be part of a noble elite that would decide the fate of America. This concept was the antithesis of the intention of the founding fathers. Moreover, a nation controlled by a chosen few was not only un-American, it was decidedly Prussian. Nuclear proliferation, eugenics, the betrayal of Chiang Kai-shek, the embracing of communist China, ending the gold standard, creation of the petrodollar complex, and the need for unending military enforcement in the Middle East has not boded well on the average American. The immense prosperity once enjoyed by the middle class is long gone. The question that logically arises is where does all this end? One of Kissinger's former students and realpolitik advocate, Professor Graham Allison, applied Thucydides' trap in the modern era. It perfectly describes the potential of war between America, a nation that has been structurally weakened over 50 years, and communist China, a nation that has been structurally empowered over the last 50 years. Both nations' destinies have been profoundly shaped by Henry Kissinger. They write, It is clear that the Washington establishment viewed Henry Kissinger as the man who had provided unimaginable wealth to the globalist corporations and that Donald Trump represented an existential threat to their new world order. And of course, we can see that playing out on the world stage. And finally, they cite an article from a website called unlimitedhangout.com with the headline, Dr. Klaus Schwab, or how the Council on Foreign Relations taught me to stop worrying and love the bomb. And that is kind of a reference to the subtitle of the movie, Dr. Strangelove. The subheadline of this article says the World Economic Forum wasn't simply the brainchild of Klaus Schwab, but was actually born out of a CIA funded Harvard program headed by Henry Kissinger and pushed to fruition by John Kenneth Galbraith and the real Dr. Strangelove, Herman Kahn. This is the amazing story behind the real men who recruited Klaus Schwab who helped him create the World Economic Forum and who taught him to stop worrying and love the bomb. So Henry Kissinger has had a hand in absolutely every piece of this global regime and its agenda over the last 70 years. But apparently his card has been punched and his death comes at the same time as his Petrodollar creation crumbles along with the agenda of the same. Now, yesterday we discussed Michael Schellenberger and his release of the CTIL files. Schellenberger is one of the original Twitter files reporters, along with Matt Taibbi, and both of them were in Congress today giving testimony before the House Committee on the Weaponization of the U.S. government. Here is Schellenberger. 
Nine months ago, I testified and provided evidence to the subcommittee about the existence of a censorship industrial complex, a network of government agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, government contractors, and big tech media platforms that conspired to censor ordinary Americans and elected officials alike for holding disfavored views. I regret to inform the subcommittee today that the scope, power, and lawbreaking of the censorship industrial complex are even worse than we had realized back in March. Two days ago, my colleagues and I published the first batch of internal files from the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, which show US and UK military contractors working in 2019 and 2020 to both censor and turn sophisticated psychological operations and disinformation tactics developed abroad against the American people. Many insist that all that we identified in the Twitter files, the Facebook files, and the CTI files were legal activities by social media platforms to take down content that violated the terms of service. Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, and other big tech companies are privately owned, people point out, and free to censor content. And government officials are free to point out wrong information, they argue. But the First Amendment prohibits the government from abridging freedom of speech the Supreme Court has ruled that the government may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to accomplish what is constitutionally forbidden to accomplish, and there's now a large body of evidence proving that the government did precisely that. What's more, the whistleblower who delivered the CTIL files to us says that its leader, a quote-unquote former British intelligence analyst, was quote-unquote in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter-disinformation project to, quote, stop a repeat of 2016. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Information Security Agency, CISA, has been, at the center, been the center of gravity for much of the censorship, with the National Science Foundation financing the development of censorship and disinformation tools and other federal government agencies playing a supportive role. Emails from CISA's NGO and social media partners show that CISA created the Election Integrity Partnership, EIP, in 2020, which involved the Stanford Internet Observatory and other U.S. government contractors. EIP and its successor, the Virality Project, urged Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms to censor social media posts by ordinary citizens and elected officials alike. EIP reported that they had a 75% response rate from the platforms and that 35% of the URLs that they reported were either removed, labeled, um, or throttled, or soft blocked. In 2020, the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, violated the First Amendment and interfered in the election, while in 2021, CISA and the White House violated the First Amendment and undermined America's response to the COVID pandemic by demanding that Facebook and Twitter censor content that Facebook said, that Facebook itself said was quote unquote often true, including about vaccine side effects. All of this is profoundly un-American. One's commitment to free speech means nothing if it does not extend to your political enemies. In his essential new book, Liar in a Crowded Theater, Jeff Kosef, a law professor at the United States Naval Academy, shows that the widespread view that the government can censor false speech and or speech that quote unquote causes harm is mostly wrong. The Supreme Court has allowed very few constraints on speech. For example, the test of incitement to violence remains its immediacy. I encourage Congress to defund and dismantle the government organizations involved in censorship. That includes phasing out all funding for the National Science Foundation's Track F, Trust and Authenticity and Communication Systems, and its secure and trustworthy cyberspace 
track. I would also encourage Congress to abolish CISA in DHS. Short of taking those steps, I would encourage significant guardrails and oversight to prevent such citizenship from happening again. In particular, it's very easy to see the line in CISA. They say they're covering physical security, cybersecurity, but they added a third one, cognitive security, which is basically attempting to control the information environment and how people think about the world, including the stories that they tell. Finally, I would encourage Congress to consider making Section 230 liability protections contingent upon social media platforms known in the law as interactive computer services to allow adult users to moderate our own legal content through filters that we choose and whose algorithms are transparent to all of us. I would encourage Congress to prohibit government officials from asking the platforms to remove content, which the Supreme Court may or may not rule on constitutional next year when it decides on the Missouri v. Biden case. Should the court somehow decide that the government requests for censorship are constitutional, then I would urge Congress to require such requests be reported publicly instantaneously so that such censorship demands occur in plain sight. So that is his opening statement. That is the gist of the presentation. A lot of that we went through yesterday. What we're seeing, of course, is a series of reruns so that the general public understands what has been happening over the last few years, what this government has done to us and done in our name, all paid for, of course, through the extension of the indentured servitude of each and every one of us and our progeny for generations on down. As Steve Bannon has been consistently noting, we just passed $33 trillion in our federal debt and are expected to pass $34 trillion only 100 days after passing $33 trillion. So we are now adding to our national debt at a rate of $1 trillion every 100 days. Now, I just want to highlight another interesting moment from this testimony. Michael Schellenberger has an interaction with Congressman Dan Goldman, who was the guy we just mentioned a week or so ago, who said on television that Donald Trump needs to be eliminated. This is the heir of the Levi Strauss fortune. He is a degenerate communist worth a quarter of a billion dollars because of his family. Here is that exchange. You have no idea. You know you hard drives can be manipulated. Are you suggesting the New York Post participating in a conspiracy to construct the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop? No, sir. The problem is that hard drives can be manipulated by Rudy Giuliani or Russia. Well, what's the evidence that and that happened? What's well, there the is actual evidence of it, but the point is it's There's not no the evidence for it. So you're engaging in a conspiracy. I'm glad you. So that is Michael Schellenberger calling out Communist Congressman Dan Goldman for spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories right there in Congress. He's making baseless claims without any evidence that somehow the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop were manipulated, which means that no one can trust anything that is on the laptop. And so now the laptop is not actual proof of Joe Biden's political corruption and criminality. It's actually proof that none of the issues raised by what's on that laptop can ever be considered as Joe Biden's political corruption and criminality. It actually disqualifies each and every one of those issues from discussion. Now, you might think that's crazy, 
but to people who are still asleep, to standard issue villagers on the uniparty left, and even many on the uniparty right who are just consumed with Trump hate, that argument actually makes complete and total sense to them. You can't trust anything that is on that laptop. And because of the process by which the laptop and its contents came into public view, because of the fact that they were handled by Rudy Giuliani, both before and after they were handled by the FBI and our intelligence community, none of the subjects and issues raised on that laptop can ever be considered by anyone. Each and every one of those issues is now tainted and should be ignored, stricken from the record. It's like Joe Biden didn't do any of those things and couldn't have done any of those things. Those are all disqualified. It's just like how Joe Biden being mentored for decades in politics by a Klan leader doesn't count anymore because that Klan leader at some point said that he regretted ever being a Klan leader and encouraged other people not to become Klan leaders if they wanted to then later get into politics because it would never go away. They would always be, oh, that's that Klan leader who's in politics now. Robert Byrd, Joe Biden's mentor, denounced his time as a Klan leader on the basis that it was inconvenient for his political career. So now you can't point out that Joe Biden was mentored by a Klansman. They'll just say, well, he renounced that, so that doesn't count anymore. It's like Robert Byrd was never racist to begin with. And it's proof that Joe Biden could never be racist despite all the racist things he says. It's a matter of the factual record that Joe Biden was mentored in politics for three decades by a Klan leader, but it has become an irrelevant fact that no one is allowed to take into account because they claim it's all been disavowed. Once true facts about the world are discredited, according to a bunch of child-brained communists and standard-issue villagers all believe them, those facts are no longer facts, not in any way that matters. You really have to feel for these commies. They definitely thought at some point after Joe Biden's fake inauguration that they had it made. They were going to get rid of Donald Trump. Everybody would move on and things would return to how they were before, you know, except with all the new advantages of the new normal. They would get that great reset done, but they would have their lives of power and status and wealth and comfort, which would not be disrupted by anyone. Get rid of Donald Trump. They get to be powerful forever. It seems like they're kind of realizing it didn't exactly work out that way. Now, Elon Musk, who we've been talking about quite a bit, was at an event for the New York Times yesterday, and he was interviewed on stage by Andrew Ross Sorkin, who is a TV host on CNBC, if I'm not mistaken. The event is called the Deal Book Summit, and there are a few clips. I mean, the whole interview is very interesting, but a few clips I want to share. One of them has already kind of gone viral, and I want to share a more extended version of that segment. And I'm talking, of course, about Elon Musk and the emergence in the real world of FU money being used for what FU money's supposed to be used for. Saying F you. Um, what was that trip like? And obviously, you know that there's a public perception that, and, and you're clarifying this now, 
Um, but there's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will. That this had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't about, advertise. How do you think then about the economics of, of X? If, 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 if part of the underlying model, at least today, and maybe it needs to shift, maybe the answer is it needs to shift away from advertising. Um, if, if you believe that this is the one part of your business where you will be beholden to those who uh, have this view, what do you do? F Y. I, I understand that, but there's a reality too, <laughs> right? Yes. No. No. I, I mean, Linda no, Yaccarino is right here, and she's uh, got to sell uh, advertising. Uh, absolutely. So, um, no, no, totally. So, so no, no. Actually, what what this advertising boycott is uh, is is going to do? It's it's going to kill the company. And do you think that the uh, I, but, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are, those advertisers, I imagine, are going to say they're going to say we didn't kill the company. Oh yeah, they're going to say tell it to tell it to Earth. But they're going to say that they're going to say Elon that you killed the company because you said these things, and that they were inappropriate things, and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. Right. That's see, that's and, what and they're going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. So let me, okay. This, then this goes back to we'll, the, we'll both make our cases, right? And we'll see what the outcome is. What are the economics of that for you? I mean, you, you have enormous resources, so you can actually keep this company going for a very long time. Would you keep it going for a long time if there was no advertising? I mean, if the company fails because of an advertised boycott, it will fail because of an advertised boycott. And that will be what bankrupted the company, and that's what everybody on Earth will know. But what do you think, then, of the... I guess, this goes back to the idea of trust, though. Then it'll I, be gone. And it'll be gone because of an advertised boycott. But, but you recognize that some of those people are going to say that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. And I, I, wonder, I just wonder and ask you and think about that for a Tell second. Tell it to the judge. But the, but the judge is going to be... Uh, the judge is the public. So the clip that went viral yesterday was much shorter. It was about 30 seconds long and just included the part where Elon Musk told advertisers that they could go F themselves. He's not going to be blackmailed. They're not going to be able to wield money over his head. It's not about the money. It's about, according to Elon, his free speech and his ideas, his ability to be able to express his own ideas in public. It's about the ability for other people to do that as well. And it seems like he has a genuine belief that it falls to him to stand up to these massive transnational corporations that are threatening to attempt to destroy his company unless he puts in the speech requirements that they want. And of course, the whole Israel situation is being used as the cudgel here. It's got to be about anti-Semitism. Elon is 
hurting and threatening the Jewish community. And this is still the aftermath of what he is now suing Media Matters for, which was that report that these advertisers ads were being placed next to neo-Nazi content. Media Matters actually manipulated the platform in order to create that situation in the first place. So Elon was responding in that context. People are saying he just traveled to the Middle East, to Israel on an apology tour because he realizes how much his quote unquote anti-Semitic tweet has done real harm to people. But that's not at all what he's doing. And he's not backing down from the advertisers. And if those advertisers want to boycott, if they don't want to use Twitter for advertising, and as I've said many times, I believe Twitter advertising is far more than just placements of ad content in people's feeds. It's access to the information on a very high level. And if they want to forego that and tell the public that they're foregoing it and why, they're telling the public they don't want to support free speech in the exchange of ideas. They're telling the public that unless they get their way and unless only their ideas are pushed, they're going to pull their money out, even if it means taking down the platform, the X platform, formerly Twitter. And that's the threat. And that's what Elon is responding to. He's saying, go ahead and bring it. Try to take the platform down. If you think you're going to be able to do it, then go ahead and do it. Bring the platform down and then tell the public around the world that you are responsible for destroying the not quite free speech platform. He's taunting them. He's saying, go ahead and do it and watch how the people respond. And so Elon Musk is becoming, I guess, the second man behind Donald Trump to be able to do this, at least in America. You could probably apply this to Vladimir Putin and maybe she and maybe some others around the world. But Donald Trump was in a position of security, wealth, whatever it takes to be able to stand up right in the faces of the most wealthy and powerful people on earth and turn two big fat middle fingers up right in their faces. Donald Trump did that to these people. Elon Musk is now doing that to these people. And everybody has rightly called that the literal embodiment of earmuffs. Fuck you money. It's the idea that you can have enough money that you can tell everybody to go fuck themselves. And if you're not hip to the lingo and to the acronyms, Elon Musk actually says GFY. And that's what people type on X and other social media platforms to mean go F yourself. Elon is telling transnational corporations and their leaders and ultimately the people who imagine they control culture that he does not care about their money. Even if it takes down the entire platform, he doesn't care. He will take them to court because they are collectively manipulating the situation in order to take down his company. And he believes he'll have legal recourse. He's already going to war in the courts with media matters about this exact issue. And he probably has some level of confidence about how that's going to go. And if that goes that direction, then all of these other companies will see it go in that direction as well. And he's not only worried about the courts of law. He says it 
quite clearly at the end. The judge is the public. He cares about the court of public opinion. And he's saying, I have faith that the people will see this issue the way I do. And he's right. The people will see that issue the way he does. The people don't care about these transnational corporations. And this isn't just about normal people in the United States of America. It's about normal people worldwide. They don't care about these transnational corporations. In fact, if they have any feeling about them whatsoever, those feelings have soured quite a lot, even for people who still stay behind those corporations and still support them, despite what they did throughout 2020 with COVID, with BLM, with the very violent insurrection, with the censorship, with all of these issues. So many of the corporations, the World Economic Forum partner corporations, have taken on a pretty negative public image. People understand these companies are part of the problem and they consistently reject these companies when it becomes clear that they are part of the problem. Elon has a pretty good understanding of what the reaction would be if these companies ended up taking down Twitter, causing Twitter as a platform to no longer exist. And naturally, the fact that that is possible should be squeezed for all its narrative power and juice. But it's also totally possible that eventually Twitter will be taken down and disappear or be subsumed by something else. And it's possible that maybe one of these decentralized social media hubs will emerge. And maybe that's going to end up being what Twitter is. But the point is, He's saying he is not going to let the money of these corporations dictate what he can say, what he can do, and what the people of the world are allowed to say and do on the X platform, formerly Twitter. But let's talk about the fuck you money for a second. He has all this money. He may be the wealthiest man in the world. People say that they have ways of substantiating that claim, but it is either true or it's not true. And who ultimately knows? Now, even if that is the case, if he paid $44 billion for Twitter, and I don't believe for a second that he did, and that all went down to zero, Twitter was absolutely destroyed. Well, that would be a big chunk of his fortune that he's on the hook for. A lot of his net worth is wrapped up in things that aren't just liquid. It's not like he has a pile of cash at home in the amount reported as his net worth, whatever that is now. But $44 billion would be a big chunk no matter what. Ultimately, he's saying he doesn't care. Is it less than $44 billion? Is it more than $44 billion? Could it wipe him out? Doesn't matter. He's going to do and say what he wants to do and say, because that is the only point of having the money or the power. If you're the richest man in the world and you're not allowed to speak because of the threats of evil men, then what has your money gotten you? But here's the thing. Elon says the judge is the public. The public has to make the right choice. That means the public collectively will have Elon's back if this situation, which I don't think will happen, actually did happen as he describes. But that choice also needs to be made individually and should be made individually. It's great for everyone to applaud and say, oh, yeah, Elon's got fuck you money. Congratulations to him for saying fuck you. Boy, I wish I had fuck you money. Well, hey, here's the thing. You do. 
because you have to say fuck you when it comes to things like censorship or all of the many ways the government abuses you and lies to you. The things the government demands of you that it has no right to demand and the things the government prohibits you from doing that it has no right to prohibit you from doing. You have to say fuck you about all those things. And if you can't and you don't, then what does any of the rest of it mean? You're a subject. At some point, everybody has to develop this urge so that it is there when you need it. Like when your boss says, we're going to need you to inject yourself with that toxic experimental substance that can't protect you from that disease that can't kill you. We're going to need you to do that if you want to keep coming to work. Now, a lot of people did that and they gave a lot of reasons for why they did that. Sometimes these are justifications that they make to other people so that other people will understand them. And sometimes they're justifications that people make to themselves. They say, you know, we're already in this tough financial position. If I missed a few months of work, my family would starve. We would have to sell our home. And those are very significant concerns that I am not trying to minimize. We've discussed this many times on this podcast before. But let's say, for instance, that you actually did get a bad dose of that COVID-19 vaccine. And you were one of those people who was either killed by the shot or debilitated by the shot, or potentially there's something going on in your body right now that will kill or debilitate you over the years. And again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. There are protocols being developed to try to help people rid their bodies of things like spike proteins, etc. And I really do feel sympathy for people who were pressured into making that decision. And we can all pray for their health and safety. I get it. But none of that changes the reality and none of that changes the fact that people were given a choice. The mandates were cruel and abusive, and I'm not denying that. And the situation in the economy was created by the same people putting the mandates in place, and that was cruel and abusive, and I'm not denying that. People had very real concerns and they were faced with a very difficult choice, and some of them decided they would just take the shot because they couldn't lose two or three months of income or whatever it would be until the situation righted itself and they got back on the right course. Or maybe they would have to sell the house or whatever. Now, if you're one of those unfortunate people who is debilitated or killed by the shot, well, then you miss out on all the months of income forever. And you're not around to be a husband and father, let's say. And all of a sudden, the quote-unquote responsible decision that people quote-unquote had to make no longer sounds like the responsible decision. And it didn't work out financially or in any other way. And hey, some people calculated that. Some people knew, hey, I'm taking a risk by doing this, but I think that the risk is minimal and worth it because... If I don't do this, then it's almost definitely true that my life will be thrown into financial chaos. So they believed, as they were told, there would be a very, very tiny risk of something bad happening. But if they didn't do it, then almost for certain, something not as bad, but bad would happen. And so they went along with it. They got the shot. If they knew 
that the worst possible health consequences would definitely happen to them, well, then they wouldn't have made that decision. They would have said F you to their boss. I'm not getting that shot and you can't make me fire me if you want. And then they would have figured out a way to pick up the pieces and move on with their life in a different direction, probably being a happier and more confident person for doing something life affirming rather than submitting to a system of power you don't respect while they exercise undue and abusive authority. And you might say, yeah, but there wasn't that high degree of likelihood that something bad would happen. Well, it doesn't matter. The right decision was the right decision either way. People who were forced out of their job are going to sue and they're going to start winning eventually. And regardless, they don't have to think about the fact that they submitted and that they may have poisoned themselves. And hey, I get it. Many of us poison ourselves in all sorts of different ways. You drink alcohol, you smoke cigarettes, you eat fast food, you just can't stop drinking bleach to cure your COVID. It happens. But the point is, you have fuck you money if you're willing to say fuck you. If you know that you will be able to figure it out and there are lines you will not cross, then no matter how much money you have, you have fuck you money and you should go out there and say fuck you when it's called for. Now, as everybody is out there applauding Elon for all of this, myself included, there is also the downside. Here he is talking about Neuralink. How far away do you think from that and how, how excited or scary does that seem to be? And we read these headlines, obviously, about uh, monkeys who died, as you know. How, what should we think about that? Uh, yeah, actually, the, 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 this is... <laughs> The, the, the USDA inspector who, mm -hmm. who came by the Neuralink facilities literally said in her entire career she has never seen a better animal care facility. It is, we are the nicest to animals that you could possibly be, even to the rats and mice, even though they did the plague and everything. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, is, it is like monkey paradise. Um, so uh, the, the, the thing that gets conflated is that there were some terminal monkeys where, you know, this is, long, this is actually several years ago, where the monkeys were about to die. And mm. we're like, okay, we've got an experimental device. It's the kind of thing which only put on a monkey that's about to die. And then, you know, now the monkey died, but it didn't die because of the neural link. It died because it was, you know, had a terminal case of cancer or something like that. So... Uh, Neuralink has, has never caused the death, death of a monkey. It's best, I, I, unless they're, they're hiding something from me, it has never caused the death of a monkey. And in fact, uh, we've, we've now had monkeys with uh, Neuralink implants for like two, three years, okay. and they're doing great. So, um, and we've even replaced the Neuralink twice. Uh, and, it's, and, and we're getting ready to do the, to do the first right. uh, implants in hopefully in a few months. Um, the, the, the early implementations of Neuralink, I think, are unequivocally good. Speaking of the double-edged sword, I think these early implementations are single-edged sword um, because the first implementations will be to enable people who are, have lost the brain-body connection uh, to be able to operate a computer or a phone faster than someone who has hands that, that work. Um, so you can imagine if Stephen Hawking could communicate faster than someone 
um, who had full, full body functionality. How incredible that would be. Well, that's what this device will do. Um, and we should have a proof of that in a human, uh, hopefully in a few months. Um, it already works in, in, in monkeys and works quite well um, with monkeys that can play video games just using, just by thinking. Um, so in the next application after um, the, the sort of those, you know, dealing with tetraplegics and quadriplegics is going to be um, vision. Vision is the, the next thing. So it's like if somebody is like, has um, lost both eyes or the optic nerve has failed, basically where there's, they have no possibility of having sort of some ocular correction, the, the, that will be the next thing. Uh, for Neuralink is a direct uh, vision interface. And, and in fact, then you could be like Jordi LaForge from Star Trek. You could, you could see in like any frequency, actually. You could see in radar if you want. Now, there is plenty there to be disturbed by. That is straight-up transhumanist talk. He's basically talking about merging with the machine. You are essentially a human cyborg if you have a computer directly attached to your brain that you operate by thinking. Now, I don't know if that will ultimately be possible and if that is ultimately a real potential future that we are being led into. But considering all of the many things we are told are existential crises that turn out not to be, I don't think that we should focus all of our concern on this. Now, again, a lot of people will say, doesn't that mean Elon Musk is an evil man? And hey, it's always possible. It's always possible. But in my view, the overwhelming evidence seems to indicate the opposite. Elon Musk is creating a parallel version of all of these things. All of the transhuman things that are being created elsewhere have their parallel, their mirrored version being created by Elon Musk. Is this one of those? Well, we can damn sure hope so. I don't know for sure. This is something that everyone should keep their eyes on. But again, the truth is, ultimately, everyone needs to reject it. The public will be the judge. If we don't want people choosing to become cyborgs and join with the machine, then we need to do what we can to create a culture that doesn't lead people to wanting to do that. And we need to say no to it ourselves. And one final clip from Elon Musk's talk with Andrew Ross Sorkin. You, you've devoted at least the last close to 20 years of your life, if not more, to uh, the climate, climate change, uh, to trying to get Tesla off the ground, in part to improve climate. You've talked about that. Uh, yeah, a real right-wing motive. Is. Repeatedly. Got a far right, if no, anything. No, I understand that. <laughs> And then it's so it's, 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 it's right. reverse psychology next level. Well, no, but so here's then the question, which is how do you square the support that you have given? Uh, I believe you were at a fundraiser uh, for uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, who says that yeah. the climate uh, climate issue uh, is a hoax. Right. Yeah, I disagree with him on that. I but I would think that that would be such a singular issue for you. I would think that, uh, that the climate issue would be such a singular issue for you that actually it would disqualify almost anybody who, who didn't take that issue seriously. Well, I haven't endorsed anyone for, for president. I mean, I wanted to hear what Vivek had to say 
because um, I think some of his things are, that's some of the things he says, I think are pretty solid. Um, you know, he's concerned about government overreach, um, about government control of information. The, I mean, the, the, the degree to which uh, old Twitter was basically a sock puppet of the government was ridiculous. Um, so, you know, it, it seems to me that there's, that there's a, a very severe violation of the First Amendment um, in terms of how much a government control, uh, how, how much control the government had over old Twitter, um, and uh, it no longer does. So, you know, there's a reason for the First Amendment. Um, the reason for the First Amendment for freedom of speech is because the, the people that immigrated to this country uh, came from places where there was not freedom of speech, and and they were like, you know what? We've we, we got to make sure that that's constitutional. Um, because where they came from, if they said something, they'd be put in prison. Or there'd be, you know, something bad would happen to them. So, uh, and freedom of speech, you have to say, when is it relevant? It's only relevant when, when someone you don't like can say something you don't like. Or it, ha it has no meaning. Um, and, and, and as soon as you sort of, you know, throw in the towel and concede to censorship, it is only a matter of time before someone censors you. And that is why we have the First Amendment. Um, could you see yourself voting for President Biden? If, if, it's, if it's a Biden-Trump election, for example? I think I would not vote for Biden. <laughs> You'd vote for Trump? I'm not saying I'd vote for Trump, but I mean... This is definitely a difficult choice here, yeah, you know. <laughs> would, you, uh, would you vote for Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley, by the way, wants uh, all social media um, names to be exposed, as you know. No, I think that's outrageous. Yeah, no, I, we, we, I'm not going to vote for some pro-censorship candidate. I've got to say, Elon Musk is my favorite defense contractor ever. I cannot imagine that Elon Musk, as according to Cash Patel, the leading recipient of Department of Defense funds. I cannot imagine that it is part of his role in that capacity to endorse someone for president or to answer who he's going to vote for. So he's in a bit of a conundrum there, a bit of a bind, I would suspect. And so he says he's not going to vote for Biden. I don't know if I'm going to vote for Trump. He basically refuses to answer the question, but makes clear he will not vote for a pro-censorship candidate and considering that Joe Biden and Nikki Haley and really anyone who's supporting the regime is ultimately pro-censorship, that's going to take all those people out of the running. But there was one other thing in that clip, and I hope you caught it. Elon Musk actually mentioned twice that Twitter in its former form was essentially a sock puppet for the government. Now, what does that mean? Just the United States government, Twitter was doing the bidding of the United States government? Well, of course not. Twitter was a sock puppet of the evil twin faction of the United States government, the Uniparty. Now, the Uniparty doesn't just serve itself. It's not just about the United States of America. The Uniparty serves the global regime. So Twitter as a sock puppet of the Uniparty is therefore a sock puppet of the global regime. And it's not just the United States in the global regime. It's Many countries around the world, certainly the UK Commonwealth and whatever other nations they have successfully infiltrated and taken over, whether they're in the Middle East or Africa or Southeast Asia or South America or right next to our own country. 
And you got all those transnational corporations right in the mix, all the global governing bodies, the UN and all the surrounding NGOs. So Twitter was then a sock puppet for all of that. Not exactly the so-called private company we've always been led to believe. So tonight on Fox News, they're having the great red versus blue state debate. The great red versus blue state debate. (laughs) It rhymes. It just rolls right off the tongue. We're going to have Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom debate. And Sean Hannity is going to be the moderator for this debate. And Fox News has been advertising it for days. They have a second-by-second countdown clock going. And on foxnews.com, they have that countdown clock ticking down second-by-second. It says in the box where the countdown clock is ticking that the great debate starts at 9 p.m. Eastern. And apparently, no one has bothered checking to realize that their countdown clock is off by an hour. Fox News' website has their countdown for the big debate tonight off by an hour. It is absolutely the sideshow that I and others have been predicting. Ron DeSantis actually released a video this morning talking about how bad it was that the state of California has been Californicated. He's basically trying to sound cute and clever by referencing a nearly 30 years old Red Hot Chili Peppers song. It is absolutely embarrassing and cringeworthy, and I'm sure it will only get worse tonight. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!